Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets and artists, including Olivia Gatwood and A.E. Stallings, and original poetry read by the authors. I'm your host, James Moorhead, poet laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas and Portraits of Red and Gray. Pamela Wax is the author of Walking the Labyrinth, Main Street Rag 2022, and the forthcoming chapbook, Starter Mothers, Finishing Line Press. Her poems have received awards from Crosswinds Poetry Journal, Patterson Literary Review, Oberon Poetry Magazine, and the Robinson Jeffers Tour House. Her publication credits include Barrow Street, Pensive, Connecticut River Review, Heron Tree, Glimpse, Mudfish, Pedestal, and many others. Pam is an ordained rabbi who facilitates spiritual poetry writing workshops and walks labyrinths in the northern Berkshires of Massachusetts, or wherever she can find them. Her forthcoming website is PamelaWax.com. Just a short trigger warning, please note that this episode, because of the subject matter and themes of Pamela's new book, Walking the Labyrinth, may touch on suicide. If you are having suicidal thoughts, please reach out for support resources in your area. Pamela, welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. I'm honored to be here, James. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I'm very excited to discuss your your book, which is so powerful and I think will resonate with many people that have, have, have are, are experiencing or have experienced similar events in their lives. Uh, before discussing Walking the Labyrinth, though, what were the poems or poets that first sparked your interest in poetry? So back in the 80s, before... Um... I came back to poetry. I was living in Santa Cruz, California, um, writing poetry and actually won an award when I was in my 20s and went to the Napa Poetry Conference where I got to study with Carolyn Forche. And she was one of my first formidable um, models, mentors in that way. Um, But in Santa Cruz, Ellen Bass lived as well as Adrienne Rich. And they were part of my community, and I had the opportunity to read with them. Um, And then I got scared by this idea of being a poet. And I left poetry really until my brother died, and I came back to writing poetry. So um, I can't say that during those years I had particular models because I was writing memoir, reading memoir, reading fiction as opposed to poetry. And it's only through the writing this book that I've come back to feeling like I can call myself a poet, that it's become really a passion and a compulsion, I should say, and an obsession. Um, I had a similar journey. I mean, I got into poetry in 10th grade uh, through a creative writing class and was really prolific uh, in, in high school and university. And then then I would taper off and wait for the moment of perfect inspiration, but always have this this urge, poetic urge uh, circling around. And then it was really the pandemic that made me have a burst of productivity and creativity mm-hmm. and then a uh, an acceptance of equal stature that I'm both this professional side of my life in the tech industry and a poet. And it was quite a challenging mental hurdle to overcome. And I've heard that from other 
poets as well. It was almost, I was slightly embarrassed to say, oh, I'm a poet. Now I'm not anymore. And it, that was a major turning point over the last several years. So I can relate to that. Oh, yes. I'm glad to hear that. Writing poems in memoriam is a challenging task most poets have tackled. Your book is almost entirely poems memorializing your brother. How did writing these poems help work through the grief of loss, and how did you decide what to share publicly through your poetry? There were a lot of bad poems that didn't make it into the book, but I really did not edit myself in terms of what I wrote. There's one poem in the book that is called How to Bring Him Back, um, which is a backwards view of his suicide. Mm -hmm. in which you start with him at the bridge um, and then you work your way back to him leaving home before he got there. That was the most terrifying poem in the book for me and the one I did not want to include in the collection because I thought it would hurt my brother's husband and his kids. And when I called my brother-in-law, everything else was on the table, but I think it was that that particular poem that was so graphic. But when I asked my brother-in-law about it, he was incredibly generous with, I might never read it, but it's your right to write it, mm -hmm. your prerogative to write it. And I think it opened me up to writing some other poems that I might not have written otherwise. That once I had his permission in that way, I guess what I'm saying is there had been a censor in some way that I hadn't even recognized mm -hmm. until that poem came out and I was concerned about it. And then other poems came because of his permission. I don't know if that answers your question, but, you know, it was a real catharsis to write these poems. Um, you know, people, you know, it's both an elegy to Howard, my brother, but I think it's as much an exploration of my own grief. And as a rabbi, I know that you know, the book of Psalms is so much about grief and despair in addition to every other human emotion. Um, I come from a long tradition, as you said, of other poets who've written about death, mortality, the loss of loved ones. The fact that it doesn't seem apparently trite to people and that it speaks to that universal human experience is really, really touching to me. Um, I didn't expect it to land as it has. Well, I'm, I, I think that the poem you mentioned that goes uh, in reverse is an incredibly powerful poem. So I'm I'm glad as a reader that it was included in the collection. I think it just – it gave gravitas to the rest of the book and uh, just because it was so powerful and uh, unflinching. So yeah. – but it is yeah. – yeah, but I, I appreciate you sharing the, the complexities of – subject matter where the family member, you're not writing about a Greek mythological character that's long gone or never really existed. You're writing about, you know, there's people that are still in that universe that are alive. So um, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. So several of the poems in this collection explore the question, why? Searching for signs that were missed. Mayday is a moving example and begins with, he didn't say it twice, urgent that his ship was listing off balance. He certainly didn't say it in French, though he must have said it in some language we didn't or refused to understand. 
How did exploring the question why in different ways and through the act of creating poetry in such intimate ways play a role in the grieving process? Particularly that question why, which I think will be very universally understood by people that have gone through something similar. Yeah. Well, a number of the poems deal with my own sense of regret and guilt. So coming to some recognition that it was out of my hands, perhaps, um, that yes, there were probably signs I could have seen um, and intervened in some way, whether it would have made a difference or not, I have no idea. But that question of why I think is there, whether you've lost somebody to suicide or not. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I have done bereavement counseling. That was my ballywick for years running a healing center. And even people who lost loved ones to illness always thought there was a way they could have saved them. Yeah. (laughs) And asked that question, why? If I had done this, what if? The woulda, coulda, shoulda is very strong in us. And... um, You know, but I think particularly strong when when somebody dies by suicide. We we don't know how to grapple with that in so mm. many ways. Yeah. Now in a culture, and I still don't know why fully. And I think that's what I take away from the poems that you wrote is you you, exp- you you it's impossible not to have your mind rattle around the why question, but at the end of the day, that it's a it's an unanswerable question in totality. And uh, that, I think it, I think those poems in particular are very powerful. So you you've touched on your faith and uh, and your role as an ordained rabbi. How has that influenced your writing? There are the obvious elements, references made in many of your poems. I'm thinking of the more subtle influences of your faith on your poetry. Yeah, well, you're going to see that in the poem I'll read later called Howard, mm-hmm. which although it references the Book of Lamentations very briefly. I consider it the most Jewish of my poems, even though that's the only reference to anything biblical or religious. And I say that because it is a deep dive into language. Mm -hmm. It parses, and we'll probably get to this later, it parses my brother's name, Howard, into its two syllables, how and ward. And to me, that's a particularly Jewish methodology of how we attack text, Hebrew text, of looking at words and combinations of words and how we can rework the letters of a word for a totally different reading of the text. And um, that playfulness with language, I feel, is part of what comes naturally to me and is the rabbinic part of me looking at language. Um, And that's the most obvious and the first thing that comes to mind when you ask that question, other than the obvious of you know, references to Jewish how, you know, yeah, it's how I look at text and really delve into words often. That is fascinating. That's actually what I was, I was hoping there would be some below the surface thing that I wouldn't uh, catch as a reader more directly. And now I'm, I'm very tempted to go back and reread several of the poems and I'm going to be listening to even your, the poem that you're going to read, one of the poems you're going to read even more closely given that context. That's very interesting. I think it also comes through in a slightly different way in the poem Knacker, you know, where I talk about my Hebrew name being Panina, which means pearl in it's the Hebrew word for pearl. And then I go into this whole thing about the pearl how it's created, mm-hmm. 
and that being my relationship to writing, in fact, about this intrusive grief and how it creates this irritant Mm -hmm. and that my writing becomes more and more lustrous and beautiful as I deal with this irritant grief um, that becomes a pearl. Uh, that's that's beautiful. I love the examples that you you shared there. So there are many there are so many moments of extraordinary beauty in your book, and the poem "My Nephew Dreams of Birds" was one of my favorites. An excerpt: You visit when he sleeps. You are a crow, bluebird, cardinal, canary. You choose the color, and he supplies the plumage. He shows me a single feather left on his pillow in the morning, and lets me stroke it against my cheek. This image of your brother having an ethereal presence in nature is so beautifully crafted and one of the shortest poems in the book. What was your approach to arising at this particular poem and getting it just right? That poem came pretty much as is, Mm. except that it wasn't clear that it was my nephew. And there was some confusion about who I was referring to. um, And that was really the primary edited. It was an amazing, just one of those creative moments. It came fully. Um, And my nephew, in fact, had had a dream of my brother, his father, as a bird, Mm -hmm. which is in my second book, a fuller explanation of that dream he'd had, where he'd been outside with my brother as a human being, my nephew went back into the house. When he came back, my brother was there as a bird. Um, and so I played a lot with that image because it was very comforting to him, apparently, um, as a 12-year-old child having lost his dad to suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, and very comforting then to me to know that it had been comforting to my nephew, that dream. Uh, well, it wouldn't. Don't you wish that all of our poems could just fall out of us like that? I can. Oh, I, I. I could have. I've had two poems <laughs> fall out of me: a short one in my second book, and a much longer one, the the, the title poem, my first book. Um, it's happened twice, and I remember exactly <laughs> what it felt like. It was almost as though I couldn't write fast enough, and it, it just somehow, boy, if I could figure, if there was like a. I don't know, a vitamin I could take that would, that would amplify that? Yeah, anyway, I'm sure every poet listening can associate with that. Uh, so I was recently asked to write a poem in memoriam for my father-in-law, the second time I've written a poem for the loss of a family member and recited the poem at the funeral, uh, writing those poems necessarily with very little time to do so was uh, challenging. Reciting the poems without the emotion taking over was even more challenging how do you approach reciting poems that are so personal and formed from grief without the grief overwhelming the poetry? It depends on the audience. Mm -hmm. I think when there are people who are there who know me and knew my brother, it's much more an emotional um, reading than when it's strangers where I can have that distance. I'm going to be doing the book launch in Chicago where my brother lived and where his family still lives in September. And I have no doubt I will have to really prepare myself to not lose it because it'll be people, an audience full of people who knew him. So it really depends. 
Mm. And I find this even when, as a rabbi, when I do funerals myself, if I'm close to somebody, it's okay if I cry, even though I'm officiating at the funeral. I devoted an earlier episode of this podcast to exploring how writing poetry helps unlock memories, how the process of exploring images in re-experiencing emotion to capture it in words can tap into memories long buried. Did you experience something similar through the process of writing these poems? And do you see writing in poetry or in any form as a tool in the grieving process? Oh my gosh, that's so central to this book and to what I was doing because when you lose somebody, absolutely long lost memories come to the surface. And it was a question of, what ones I wanted to tend to and address. You know, one of the poems in the book, you know, is my earliest memory of my brother. I was five years older and I remember very clearly his birth. So I actually thought that would be the beginning poem to the book. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I thought, you know, it would be a chronological book initially, but that's actually not what happened. It weaves in and out and the arc is quite different in that book. That particular poem comes later, but, um, so many memories and that was part of the healing to realize that nothing could take away that history I had with him. Well, that, that actually perfectly leads into the, my next question around the order of the poems, the structure of your book shows a lot of care was taken in balancing grief with some lighter moments, relativity, my sleeve and Jewish geography are a few examples How did you approach the construction of Walking the Labyrinth, which I know is for the two books I've crafted, the the ordering that I've just got them all laid out on the floor and I'm moving them around and I just just can't figure it out and I agonize over it and I get feedback. So how did you approach ordering this book where the order I thought was very carefully crafted? Yes. So the reality is I can't take full credit for that at all. In fact, I probably can't take any credit for that. Um, I hired a wonderful editor who laid all the poems down on his living room floor. Yeah, it's it's the technique everybody uses, and it works very and, well. And came back to me with this suggested order, which I think got changed a little because there were a couple of poems he thought should not be included, that they were a little sentimental. And I reworked them to get included, and so we had to do a little shuffling to make that work. Um I did not see Gleanings to be the last poem in the book. Mm -hmm. That poem actually was written in 1989. Wow. That poem was written long before Howard died um, and is, uh, you know, written first, but ends up being the last book in the poem. There's an art that I still am not fully versed in about how to put a collection together. Um, Starter Mothers, I have to say, Travis my editor, I think I laid it out first and he made a couple of changes. So I think that one I had a bigger hand in my chat book that's out, you know, forthcoming. But this one, I, I had very little to do with. Yeah, no, I, I definitely play a role in it. But then I have a, um, uh, an actually USC theater grad who is my poetry coach as well. And because he did his, uh, his MFA in screenwriting, 
he has just a different skill set to draw from, and he really knows how to create the arc. You know, he puts a lot of emphasis on whatever that first poem is. If they don't get through the first poem, they're not reading the rest of the book. So you got to be really careful with that one and how it closes. So yeah, it's it's important, and that actually leads into my next question. This you mentioned your editor, but what's your circle of critics that you rely on to give you honest, actionable feedback during the editing and revision process, which is so important for creating yeah. great poetry. I'm an inveterate poetry student at this point. I could be taking three workshops at a time, which means writing two, three new poems a week. I also just came off of the Tupelo Press 3030 project in which in July I wrote a poem a day. Mm -hmm. um, through that, I got very little feedback actually, but I have a group of three friends whom I meet with monthly and so every month I get to workshop a couple poems that are really important for me to workshop with them. I meet with Travis, my private editor, every other week. I send him a stack of poems. He writes copious notes on them before we meet. And then I revise. So every time we meet, he gets new poems as well as the revisions of revisions. And I had been taking a lot of classes through the writer's studio as well as elsewhere. So a lot of my best poems are actually poems that came out of the writer's studio, which has a particular methodology. Um, just like classic painters copy the masters, mm -hmm. their methodology is to give us a model poem and that we have to model the narrator, the tone, the voice, even how it looks on the page with our own material. So actually two of the three poems that I'll be reading today were writer's studio models. And in that, those classes, I learned a tremendous amount and got fantastic feedback. And you need to develop a thick skin. That's what I tell, you know, I, not everybody's open to it, to getting that kind of feedback. But if you want to be good, you have to hear it. I think that uh, what's really stuck in my mind about the role of of feedback and poetry critique groups is that you can write great poems periodically just with yourself, but to write great poems consistently, you absolutely have to have some feedback loop where you're getting actionable, direct, honest feedback. Um, the biggest risk I, or the, the biggest warning red flag I have is if someone reads my poem and goes, that's nice. <laughs> I'd rather they hate it or they love it. If they hate it, there's something you can dig into. It's hard to dig any deeper once you've got a nice anyway. Uh. <laughs> All right. So before passing the mic to you to read selections from Walking the Labyrinth, a question about form. Most of the poems in this collection are free verse, but take a wide variety of forms. A broken Sestina in particular stood out. A Sestina for listeners not familiar with the form is perhaps the most strict and challenging of forms. The lines of the first six stanzas each end with the same set of six words, but in each stanza the order varies in a strict pattern. The seventh three-line stanza includes six words interspersed in a strict order. It's a nightmare form. I'm still on, still on my <laughs> list. I have a topic. I have, a, I have an idea for one, but I, I just I know how many hours it's going to take to create it. A uh, broken sestina isn't strictly a sestina, but it has shadows of that form. Approaching zeal, a run-on, Abacadarian is another example where each line starts with a letter of an alphabet. 
In order, then continues Pass E, share how you approach finding a form to match the images and meaning you want to convey. Yes. I also want to say there is another broken Sistina in the book. Oh, is there? I okay. I caught it. It's Nuye Briard. Oh, okay. I'm going to definitely go back and reread it. It's broken again, <clears throat> that it started as an actual Sistina, as did a broken Sistina, but it was so forced. Yeah. In going back and um, revising so that it really worked, it couldn't be a Sistina anymore. Again, prompts. These were these were responses to prompts. The writer's studio, I forget, I think it was a Duplan Sistina that was the prompt led to both of those Sistinas. And it was a Natalie Diaz Abbasidarian that led to my Abbasidarian. Mm. So again, I don't think these are forms that on my own I ever would have come to without it being an exercise that I had to turn in for a class. And it's been really helpful to force myself to write things that I might not otherwise have chosen to write. I mean, that's what I love about classes is um, if you're given an exercise, it's not just write whatever you want to write. It's like, follow the form. Yeah. Stay close to to what the model poem is. You know, I interviewed A.E. Stallings uh, earlier this year for an episode of the podcast, and she's a first, she's a wonderful poet, but she also is a poet who uses pretty much exclusively received forms and does so with such extraordinary elegance. And um, I'm mostly free verse, but I've I've written a few sonnets lately, and I was determined to live up get or get even within a mile of the quality of how she does it. And uh, yes, reading poets who do something, who make you, I think it's also a Billy Collins at a reading I saw, he said, you know, read poetry that makes you jealous of that poet and, yeah. uh, and challenges oh my gosh. you. <laughs> yes. And then it'll inspire you to stretch yourself. And I think you can have, your voice doesn't mean that you stick with one particular form um, and you can definitely do that. So I think that's that's great advice. Well, now I'm going to turn the mic over to you to read several selections from Walking the Labyrinth. This is the poem entitled Howard. One, how. The question might be asked to confirm the degree or amount of something like, how old was he? Or how long was this going on? It could be used to ask about the condition of a person or thing. How did your meeting go with the police? Maybe it shows surprise, how awful, how I wish I'd known. It asks, in what way or manner, by what means, how did he do it? How can be answered unlike why, with straightforward facts about traffic videos and timestamps, four scribbled notes and three paintings of cherries, found in a wayward blue SUV with Illinois plates, ditched on a cantilever truss bridge over a river flowing westward. How is the first word of the Book of Lamentations? As in, how is it possible a city, a person, can sit so deserted? Like the kid in solitary, white coats glimpsed through the shatterproof pane, ticking off all those usages, surprise, and a degree, and a desire to know degree, condition, and in what way. Two, 
ward. Ward, a suffix denoting direction and space or time, like downward or afterward. If you go forward, onward, or backward, it can be either temporal or spatial. But downward, outward, toward, eastward are all in relationship to something in place. Awkward, and you don't recognize your own body in space. Skyward, and you feel yourself taller. Rightward, and your friends question your values. Seaward, and you begin to smell salt water long before you arrive. This next poem is called Day of Atonement. And as I said earlier, this is one of the poems that was based on an exercise. It was playing off of Stanley Plumley's Stanley Plumley's Pushcart Prize poem called Sycamore, um, in which he starts with a childhood memory that leads him to an adult memory. Day of Atonement. If on the Sabbath of Sabbaths you were absent from kindergarten, the only Jew in your class, let alone the whole school, you might be invited by Mrs. Buds when you returned to stand tall, project like a shofar to the back of the room and tell all about your holy day. All I knew then was Moses in the bulrushes where I wanted to be hiding, the mimeograph I colored in Sunday school, a baby adrift in an ark, waterproofed with part pine tar and pitch, a mother's last prayer hanging on the refrigerator at home. There was no room yet for contrition or repentance in this basket floating down the Nile toward accountability. I knew how to say she did it of my younger sister. It's his fault of a brother too young to walk or talk, but not I'm sorry. I pressed my patent leather heels together to keep my knees from quaking and gave my first sermon ad-libbed about a baby who had to fast until he found the breast of his mother down the river. He wasn't sorry, just hungry. And now, more than 50 years later, I taste the truth of it. My brother was just hungry for a mother down the river from where he landed, face down, and I'm left rueful I wasn't she, the guilt inky as resin sticking to everything. And this third poem, which was um, based on John Murillo's poem, which was his was much longer, um, about 50 couplets, where mine is maybe half that. His was called upon reading that Eric Dolphy transcribed even the calls of certain species of birds. Um, so his is about birds, mine is about a raccoon. It is the same kind of interweaving uh, of memory. And he has this fantastic word in his, a lamentation of swans, that that's what you call a group of swans. Mm -hmm. And mine has a gaze of raccoons. Upon reading that superhero Rocket Raccoon was inspired by the Beatles song, I think about the masked bandit that's been ransacking my garden sometime in the pre-dawn hours when I'm not there to guard it, gnawing wedges from the zucchini and leaving half-eaten tomatoes in the bed as compost. He's a menace to the neighborhood and I can't get rid of him, despite the trap and the light sensors set to send him packing. 
I imagine him there laughing at me, him and his piercing gaze of friends. They remind me of the neighbor next door, the one who sits on his porch staring at me while I hide behind my mirrored sunglasses and floppy hat, pretending not to notice him while I weed and sew and hope he won't recognize me if we end up in the same aisle at Stop and Shop, the same guy who spits obscenities through our bedroom window in the middle of the night so that I now, knee-jerk, reach for the scissors I hide under the bed just in case before convincing myself he's harmless so I can fall back asleep while my husband, half-deaf, never stirs. There was that time he showed up at synagogue for the Sabbath service and I started shaking, sweating and panting like a raccoon with its built-in cooling system, my body on red alert before I even realized it was him. And I stayed away for months, conceding that he needed that sanctuary more than I, generous in a selfish kind of way, even though I was sure he wasn't Jewish and that he'd followed me there as a taunt or warning. I went to the police, knowing how useless they can be, or odious at worst, the proverbial foxes guarding sitting ducks. My friend Marty, a PI, sleuthed the court's transcripts, but I never opened the attachments he sent. And then I lost that email when my server crashed. And I just heard last week that Marty died. So I'm thinking again about everything I don't know about my neighbor next door, except that he spent 12 years in jail for rape. An unusually long time was all Marty had granted. Growing up, I'd climb into my mother's closet to run my hands over the soft stole she kept wrapped in tissue paper, striped like Davy Crockett's cap, when probably all I really wanted was a furry cat, or later, a boyfriend who would love me back after all that petting was done. When our mother died, my sister and I knew better than to take the furs, mink, earmuffs, and a beaver coat, even though they were already dead. And as far as I know, PETA warriors don't practice the art of resurrection. So I wonder now what it would feel like to wear that stole around my neck in the Berkshire winters, everyone fixed on the furred superhero with a Gideon Bible as her weapon of choice and Bradley Cooper's voice, John Lennon trailing her, blowing harmonica. Dexterous, she is able to open complex locks in a single bid, but is compulsive about washing her hands like a Lady Macbeth. I last saw her climbing headfirst down a tree just to show off. Her hind feet rotated backwards until she didn't know if she was coming or going, and I, without a crystal ball in which to gaze, didn't know who was predator and who was prey. Oh, thank you so much for sharing those. It's so wonderful to hear these poems with the voice of the poet that always adds something. I think all poems, and I've talked about this in a couple of episodes, have two forms, the form on the page and the form recited, and they complement each other. Uh, and I'm really glad you chose to read Superhero Rocket Raccoon. It's such a unique poem, and I, it, I now I know more about it from the backstory. A prose poem, really, <clears throat> although formed in uh, in couplets, there are so many images woven into this quilt of a poem. 
a reference to Guardians of the Galaxy, The Beatles, An Ex-Convict Neighbor, Your Mother's Furs. How did you decide what to leave in and what to edit out during the revision process? Having so many images and ideas in one poem can be challenging to achieve, but you've done it so well here. Yeah, yeah. I, I am embarrassed to say that this is another one that came very easily. Well, now that's unfair. <laughs> I, I apologize because I, I knew you would feel apologize that. Apologize to all the listeners, <laughs> not just me. <laughs> it, it, it really comes from that particular methodology. Mm-hmm. That from reading and rereading John Murillo's poem, which I suggest you read, I... I was incorporating a voice and um, a persona, a talky persona, that once I knew what my material would be and had researched, you know, gaze of raccoons and lamentation of swans, and, you know, I had this whole list of other animals I could have gone with. Once I settled on the gaze of raccoons, it sort of just wrote itself. Mm-hmm. Now that's an important point. Is that yes, it fell out of you, but you. There's yeah, a, I did there's research. A, did You're research. Right. I had think... to research raccoons. Obviously, I didn't know that they had this internal heating cooling system. I didn't know that they had rotating paws. I mean, there was yes, there was research. But I think but that on that detail, yeah. so that's helpful. Yes. Yeah, yeah. There's things I then had to decide: how does it fit into this poem? I think yep. that that's. Um, a point I made in a couple episodes is that I don't think people realize that research plays such an important role in not all poems. Some poems are purely from personal memory, but uh, that there's almost like, I'm curious to hear how you approach the research. For me, I've done poetry. I love doing ecrastic poems. I've done poetry on sculpture, which I can't personally do, but I've I go off and watch videos and read articles on the techniques of the of sculpture and the, what words do they use. And then I'm on the hunt for language that is poetic. And I'm just keeping my fingers crossed that whatever I'm researching has some really cool language. So I'm just, yeah. how do you approach the research uh, effort that goes into into poems that, that rely oh, on research? Yes. So th- I'm sorry that I didn't even really remember that until you probed. Um, often I'm doing research. Like right now, I'm on this whole thing about insects. Um, <laughs> it's like I'm being I'm obsessed by insects, and so I'm doing a lot of research. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think it's a, I think it's um, it's a very important aspect of many poems is the research process. So yeah, I love it. And I'm and again, I'm just thankful the English language has such a, an extraordinarily oh, deep yeah. uh, deep bench of words to choose from. Well, just one more question. Um, Howard is the perfect poem to open this collection in several ways. It frames the book around your brother, the very first word. How frames the central question of the book. Uh, and you talked a little bit about, you know, the this looking at how and or Ard and then and then and then really digging into that. Now I have a better understanding of the approach you take from your your background as a rabbi. Um, was this poem written earlier in the process of crafting this book? and stood out as the opening poem from the beginning? Or was this poem written specifically to open the book? Or was it rewritten to work as an opening poem? As I said, I did not um, put the book in order. I was very surprised when Travis chose this poem to open the book. Hmm. As I said, had I had my druthers, it would have been that poem 
<laughs> about meeting my brother when he was born, you know, the chronological order. Um, none of the book, none of the poems in the book were written for the book. Okay. So there was nothing I said, oh, I, this is missing. I need to write this poem. Um, these were all poems that were written. As I said, there were plenty on the cutting room floor. There are poems I've written since that I wish I had written then that I think would have made it into the book. Um, because this is my, if you know, um, Richard Hugo, I think is his name, mm -hmm. his book, The Triggering Town. You know, this is a topic I'll continue to write about, if, even though it won't ever be the subject matter of a full collection in the future, I'm sure. Um, it still comes up. So, no, I had no intention of this opening the book, but I have a wonderful editor. <laughs> so interesting. Uh, well, just what are you up to next and how? what are the, what are the ways in which people can expect to, uh, to hear you as you promote? promote this book i'm really humbled by the support i've been getting for it the feedback i've been getting there are a number of reviews coming out um and interviews my chapbook as you mentioned earlier starter mothers will come out from finishing line press i'm putting together the next full-length collection um, this insect obsession might end up being a collection. This morning, I got a working title in my head, Saving Insects, um, Saving and Destroying Insects in Other Worlds. Like, that's my Oh, I love title. that title. <laughs> um, I don't know why, but it's just, it's something comes over me. I've been writing a lot on climate change. So some of those are my insect poems, particularly bee poems. I have a whole lot of poems on reproductive justice. I used to work as an abortion counselor. Mm -hmm. Whether that will become a collection, a lot of my poems last month during the Tupelo Challenge were on that theme, you know, right after Dobbs fell, after Roe v. Wade fell, rather, in the Dobbs decision. So I'll just keep writing. Once my website is up, You'll find everything that's online there and whatever reading opportunities. I'm doing a lot of travel in September, scholars and residents all over the country um, this fall. So that's very exciting. One one point I'll end on uh, is that uh, to go back to something you said earlier is is that, uh, you know, you came back to poetry and uh, it was just similar to my experience. And I remember there was a couple of years ago, I was worried that, ah, oh, you know, I've, I've lost the window is closed i should have done this when i was younger and then i uh, heard an interview with margaret atwood who's i uh, love her her latest book mm -hmm. and she made the point that she looks back at some of her earlier poems and she likes them but that you poetry gets better with years and decades of experiences to draw from and in fact the best poems are from, I believe my best poetry is still out in the future and I don't have to worry that I missed the window and that I've now got a deeper well of raw material to draw from. Is that something that you kind of feel as well? Absolutely, yes. And yet I have to say, having said that, that that closing poem, Gleanings from the Field, that I wrote in 1989 before I ever knew I was a poet, I, I, it's surprising to me. I wrote it then. You know, it was a really good poem, yeah. I think. Yeah, it is. Um, so I don't know where that came from, 
because I did not have the maturity then that I have now, but I do think I'm capable of much better poems now. Well, Pamela, thank you so much for sharing your poetry and your voice on the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast today. Your, your book is so moving and powerful, and I think will be helpful and resonate with so many people who have experienced directly or indirectly the experience that you've gone through and will continue to really go through for the rest of your life. So thank you so much for sharing your voice today. Thank you so much, James, for having me. Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Twitter at Dublin Ranch, subscribe to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, and follow us on viewlesswings.com or on Instagram at viewlesswings.com.